0: Good afternoon. This is Daniel Paris, host of the New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, author Richard Vague, a uh, author and uh, investor, currently the managing partner of Gabriel Investments uh, in Philadelphia. His uh, new book, A Brief History of Doom: 200 Years of Financial Crisis, uh, just came out and it's a very interesting read. Richard, thank you so much for joining uh, joining me today. Thank you for having me. So you are uh, in an interesting spot and one I'm very sympathetic to, both a practitioner investor and clearly someone with a historical bent. And you, you have uh, brought into clear light a focus on, on debt uh, and the role that it has played in prior crises. And obviously there's an implication in regard to, to the current situation. But do you want to kind of provide a, a background as to why you consider Kind of the key factor in looking at various crises through the past 200 years of 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 debt.
1: Yes, Uh, you know we all know that runaway mortgage lending led to the 08 crisis, and I had been a student of the Great Depression and uh, you know a couple other crises like Japan's crisis for years. And once it became so clear that private debt was the culprit in 08, I wondered whether. If we look back at the Great Depression, we would find the same thing. So, with considerable effort, I pulled together banking information on the 1920s. And sure enough, there's this runaway lending period from 1923 to 1928. You know, it's heavily real estate oriented. Um, And, you know, it just underscored what we learned about 08. So, I also wondered whether Japan's crisis, which really began manifest in 1990 and 91 was also debt-based so i pulled that information together did the same analysis and sure enough it's rampant lending in that period so we have just in this book extended that investigation we've looked at the top six countries in the world over the last 200 years which collectively account for 50 percent of world gdp And we've examined, uh, to varying degrees of depth, 43 different crises. We we look very hard at six or seven of those and uh, a little less deeply at the rest. But uh, every single one is uh, a result of very rapid run-up in debt with compromised credit standards. In other words, bad loans being made in high quantities in the
0: three to five years before the crisis. And you know, it's funny, history repeats, it doesn't repeat itself, but it you know kind of rhymes. Are there are various themes, uh, jokes about that. But w- one of the things that you come away with, or I come away with from, from reading the book is the financial memory of market participants uh, and lenders in particular is, is awfully short because it does appear to be, if not exactly the same, very, very similar mistakes are over uh, made over and over again. In the spirit almost, again, you you point out there are uh, major crises and minor crises, and you spend more time on the major ones. But if you look at the minor ones as well, it's, pro- it's roughly every 10 years, plus or minus, when there's uh, a, a, at least a bubble somewhere in the economy that bursts. It It's really striking how little we've learned. Is that is that one uh, interpretation? Clearly, there hasn't been as much investigation of this
1: subject as it wants. And, you know, uh, frankly you know we'll go into a lot of these crises and most of the research and work is done on the, at the moment of crises and in the years afterwards and for a lot of these crises very little work if any is done in the five years leading up to the crisis and to us that's the most important thing to study and you know sure enough we see these rampant uh, increases in lending that's railroads in the 1800s it's you know, more housing and commercial real estate in the 1920s. It's commercial real estate in Japan in the 19, late 1980s. You know, we see that again and again and again. And once you start fixating on this period, what one of the things you notice is that in the early phase of a lending boom, things really get wonderful. You know, you're making more housing loans, and you see that housing prices go up. And you don't think it's because we're doing a lot more lending that the pricing is going up. You just think you're a really smart lender. And lots more people get jobs, prices, you know, housing, asset prices go up. Everybody's getting rich. Everybody's paying more taxes. The government uh, uh, debt picture starts to improve. It's a wonderful time. And I think that's one of the key things that makes it so easy for folks to
0: feel like this time is different. To use the the well worn phrase, is is the uh, is it f- uh, correct though? And let me—I mean, I'm just pointing it out that uh, a lot of the lending that you refer to is it is it uh, debt just real estate debt? Uh, because in in various forms, one or another is it private sector lending? Is it real estate debt? Is it unsecured? Is it borrowing on margin? I, I you you clearly lean in the direction of, of of real estate lending. That seems to be most of the. Crises. Is that because, frankly, that's the pool where there's the greatest slack uh, and opportunity to lend money? Or is it something about real estate lending that in each of these crises tends to... Uh, think, and again, it suggests that the railroads were, in the 19th century, almost a derivative of real estate, right? But is it is it real estate lending or just debt per se that, that seems to get out of control?
1: Well, you need to look at the composition of private debt. Right now in the United States, as an example we have about 30 31 trillion dollars worth of private sector debt we have about 20 21 trillion dollars worth of government debt so private debt to begin with is a much bigger factor but if you, you look within private debt real estate lending is almost half of it. okay that, so that makes you sense mortgage lending yeah. is about you know 10 trillion commercial release about 4 trillion so you know if if you have a problem in real estate, it's going to be a big problem. Energy sector lending is only about a trillion. So in in 2016, we actually had a major uh, energy lending problem. You know, and we, i don't know what the exact number was, but you know, let's just say 10% of those loans went bad. Well, it's only a trillion. That's only a hundred billion dollar problem in a sector that has two trillion in capital. If you have a ten percent problem in real estate, that's a trillion four of bad things in an industry that only has two trillion in capital. So it's
0: it's just the relative size of the sector. Yeah, and I suppose if you you know what matters at the time. So in the in the nineteen twenties, the the leading edge of this kind of the spear was the stock market, Um, the SNL crisis in the in the eighties, and that's real estate, Uh, Japan's real estate and general lending. I'm just looking through. Your kind of table of contents and your, your uh, the railroads, obviously, in the nineteenth century. So it's wherever the wherever the economy is leading. Uh, but if you have roughly, as you point out, half of the overall private debt in real estate, it's going to lean in the direction of real estate, kind of, roughly speaking, half the, at least half the time, as it were. Uh, but each of the crises that we've had has had a slightly different lean. You know, the uh, the derivative crisis and the mortgage crisis, specific to the SNL crisis from two decades earlier. Um, you know, they, they're they both real estate related, but different mechanisms, different transmission mechanisms.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, they each have their own flavor to them, you know, and then in the 1930s, I mean, the 1830s, excuse me, a lot of it is canal debt because the big, you know, the big business of that day is canals and it's the real estate development in and around canals. You know, by the time you get to the 1850s, railroads. And the 1857 crisis, it's railroads and uh, you know, and so forth. So they each have a little bit of a different flavor to them, but by and large, re, you know, real estate plays a huge
0: uh, uh, role in every single one of them that we've observed. So now, now, I, I don't think anyone would dispute that. One of the issues that, at least in my day job as an investor, comes up and kind of structurally and academically is looking at single factor explanations and, um, it's very helpful for clarity to look at single factor explanations, but you know, uh, 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 no one gets tenured at the University of Chicago by looking at single factor explanations. Uh, you know, the more complexity that you can layer into it, the, and the more obfuscation, the 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 greater your academic success. This leans in the direction of a single factor explanation in in a world that is oriented towards multi factor explanations. That, as you were writing this and thinking this through. You know, were there did you stub your toe against the Fed? did you stub your toe against uh, re- regulatory issues? did you stub your toe against individual personalities the the cooks of this world or JP Morgan's of this world, Vanderbilts of this world who uh, may have had as much of a factor or an influence on the, the development of a crisis as the actual debt. Uh, you know, and, and how did you get comfortable with a single-factor explanation?
1: Well, we hoped all along. You know, we've been working on this pretty hard since about 2011. And we have always hoped and we still hope that there are additional factors that you can bring into bear uh, because, you know, we want as much predictive power as possible. Uh, and we we failed. <laughs> And we've looked really hard at kind of, you know, we have a database of 47 countries that is reasonably comprehensive going back at least to nineteen sixty, and generally World War II. For some countries, we've got data all the way back to the early 1800s. And we, we can look at each of these things, and we've always hoped. But something like government debt, for example, which a lot a lot of folks attribute these crises to, is almost a contrafactor. Uh, You know, government debt in Spain leading up to their own 809 crisis actually improves as a percent of GDP by 13%. So that's a dead end. So we go through these things very rigorously with a lot of data and we don't find it. You know, there's one factor that actually helps mitigate the accumulation of private debt, and that's when a country has a large net export, positive net export position. I'm not talking about one or 2% of GDP. I'm talking about 10% 10% to GDP, and you know that that can really create an
0: earning stream that helps pay down. Is that that actually. the description of uh, of China currently? You know that would, high 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 debt, but high high uh, exports. That's one of the things that's a mitigating factor. You know, we don't think it's you know uh,
1: it, we don't think it's going to save the day. In China, it's certainly going to soften soften the blow. And by the way, their net export position is. Significantly diminished from where it was in the period of, say, two thousand and three to two thousand and seven. So, you know, where it reached almost ten percent uh, to GDP. But, but it is the other thing that that we note. You know, there's there's other things that come into play because I would argue that you know economics is a behavioral science and not a physical science. So there's not any mathematical formula that carries the day because. The way the government behaves once the trouble begins to manifest itself has great bearing, great bearing on how things play out. Clearly, in the 1930s, the government's a hard ass. and you know, you know, let the banks fail, let's purge the rottenness out of this. well. You can see what that brought. Uh, you know, the United States uh, in 2007, early 2008, is a, as kind of a let institutions fail mindset and. That's one of the things that brings layman to, to its knees, and we saw what that brought. China has the opposite point of view. In, in 99, they have, you know, a, a terrible problem in their banks. They have been you know, profligate lending to spare, and yet they, because they own and control everything, very deftly use what amounts to accounting fiction to to let the banks uh, get through their problems. So. You know there are there are other issues to understand and to complicate uh, to contemplate here. So it's not
0: entirely a one factor uh, issue, but it's it's the one factor is the biggest. I, I China is an example. Japan's another example where culture is an enormous factor uh, for uh, the Japanese to acknowledge a bank failure was uh, as you describe in your book is <laughs> a huge deal. Uh, And took a long time, and again, different countries, I suppose, will bring a different sentiment uh, to 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 that, uh, so that everyone experiences uh, kind of a debt debt crisis um, um, individually. One is a culture. I I wonder if the culture of the United States that leads to the cyclicality here and the repetition of this is growth. That is this culture of growth. I I happen to work in the public equity markets, and There just is no tolerance for a steady cash stream. It needs to be a growing cash stream. Companies need to grow. And they need to grow faster than GDP. They need to grow faster than their peers. Uh, If they don't, they'll be bought out with borrowed money themselves. Uh, And this relentless focus on growth in the in the finance sector is going to lead to cyclical lending above and beyond what every other pressure would be to lend to cyclical lending. That is, have you encountered country specific explanations as to why the cycle of excess lending occurs in each 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 country? or is it just it just happens? You know, I think you've hit the nail on the head, which is to say,
1: this is a, a function of human nature. You know, this is the way to win if you're a, a football coach is to win the Super Bowl. You know, the way to win if you're the CEO of a computer company is to sell more computers or sell more phones or what have you. The way to win if you're a banker is to make more loans. That's what gets you a better stock price, a bigger bonus, a promotion. And therefore, it is. absolutely intrinsic uh, and endemic to the system. And it, you know, it, it, it crosses borders. I, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to argue that it's a lot greater here versus there versus there. It's, It's the way you accumulate power and wealth. So it's, it's there. And you know, the, it, it just turns out that if it happens in the banking business, you create too much capacity, too much real estate lending means you have, way too many empty office buildings or way too many unsold homes or way too many railroads for the in the eighteen hundreds for the number of passengers that you actually have. And once you have significant overcapacity, it means the economy has to slow down. You can't build a lot more until years pass by and demand catches up with supply. And it also means a bunch of banks have a bunch of bad loans and fail or have to
0: be rescued. So you know that part of the story is a conflict. Are are there? Uh, you know there there have been busts that are outside. If you think about the internet bubble, it doesn't really it, it doesn't really fit in your story. Um, which not that that's a problem, but it 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 is a bust that is independent. If I think of major contractions in the U.S. economy over the past century, they all more or less fit within your pattern. the The internet bubble doesn't, other than you know overgrowth or uh, overexpansion of operations within a narrow sector of the economy. And everyone getting crazed, but it really isn't a broad-based economic lending lending cycle exercise, is it? So this is where you get into the definition of what a financial
1: crisis is. And to me, a financial crisis is you know, there is a very simple thing. It's when a lot of banks and other lending institutions fail or or come, you know, have to be rescued. And so what we studied was that type of crisis. There are also occasionally stock market crises that are that happened where bubbles burst, but the financial, the lending community is not hurt. And it, you know, so the internet crisis deserves its own study. You know, you didn't have millions of consumers hurt as a result mm-hmm. of that. You had stock mm-hmm. speculators hurt, and by the way, even that one, if you study it, there's this, there's a very tight correlation between margin debt and uh, the stock
0: market boom. and, and Sure. Sure. Science. Which is a form of lending. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's go back and at least cover a couple of these and then you know kind of uh, mention you, you you do not really choose to have a uh, chronological order. Uh, the The organization uh, is it goes from crisis to crisis, but it's not organized chronologically. and and that the the point of that is to well, the juiciest crisis of all is the Great Depression. So that's chapter one. And it's the
1: one uh, about which you know the most has been written, and there's the most disagreement, and in my opinion, there's the most misunderstanding. So I just—it was simply irresistible to me—to uh, to start there, and once we we got there, we 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 were semi-chronological. You know, we went from there to the 1980s crisis, which is the next big
0: crisis. In, Really, the third largest crisis of, uh, in America in the last century, and and uh, and that yeah. is the SNL and and various banking, true bank and lending, and real estate uh, across the country, Texas in particular. Yeah, it was and leverage buyouts and so forth. Junk bonds. It was it was the eighties were a mess. It's just
1: that the, the chickens came home to roost in the George Bush administration rather than the Ronald Reagan administration, even though all the The problems problems really emanated from behavior during the Reagan administration. Um, So um, that's the second one we tackle. It's also the one where I came of age as a banker. Uh, So it's a sentimental favorite. You know, then we go to Japan, which really happens more or less at the tail end of America's 80s problem. And, you know, it's the other huge crisis. So we deal with really the three biggest crises prior to our own common experience in the OEA crisis. Then we take a pause and we go back to the <clears throat> to the uh, 19th century, really asking the question, is this a new phenomenon or is, does it have precedent in prior
0: periods? And <clears throat> We conclude that it's just endemic to the industrial age. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you cover uh, the, uh, as you say, the emergence of kind of modern banking, and specifically the 19th century is a combination of railroad crises, also agricultural crises. Commodity prices uh, are uh, far more significant in the economy and for real estate lending at that time than they are now, uh, and it, it uh, and it's also incredibly periodic that uh, in the 19th century, pretty much every 10 years, plus or minus, you have this cycle. There is no regulator. Uh, there, it's a much more wild and woolly period that uh, lends itself to that type of cyclical analysis. I mean, you know, we start, you know,
1: 200 years ago at the Second Bank of the United States, which is just down the street from where I live. So it's also another one that I've grown very fond of. And, you know, they they opened for business in early 2007, uh, 1817, excuse me, and Almost immediately have made so many bad loans, reckless loans, you know, all across the country. I believe the second bank ends up with as many as 25 branches. So, you know, you're over lending in the new cities like Cincinnati and down in the south and Baltimore and Charleston and other places. And it it, it gets, you know, loans go from at a point where no other bank has more than like a million dollars in lending. Uh, The second bank gets up to uh, like 60 million dollars in lending, so you can see how much it dwarfs the other banks in the landscape. But you know, it goes from 10 million in loans to 50, I think, 50 million loans in one year. So clearly, you know, it's almost as if they don't know how to lend. There's also a lot of fraud in that, and uh, it brings the crisis of 1819, which is one of the reasons Andrew Jackson comes to hate them so much.
0: Now do I mean usually Andrew Jackson gets a a, a bad rap for not uh, renewing their uh uh their charter you seem to uh, you you know ha, do you have a strong opinion in regard to that or it, I I think he didn't renew it for many reasons this may have been one of them is that a fair statement absolutely so what's really going on and you know Jackson has little to do with this but in
1: 1831 you have about 2 million acres worth of federal land sales. By the time you get to 1836, you have 20 million, 10 times as much land sales. Uh, this is essentially all debt financed, and any number of western and southern cities see their land prices go from, you know, $10 an acre or $50 an acre to $1,000 an acre or $5,000 an acre. Folks feel like they're getting rich, but it's all built on this Shaky foundation of debt, and so you have a lot of land sold and a lot of real estate structures built in the mid uh, 1830s that will won't get sold, won't get used for decades. I mean, it's just uh, extreme overbuilding. Somebody had, and you know, to me it brings up the interesting question, which is: once a boom is well underway, how do you manage it so that you have a soft landing? You've already right. pointed out that there's cultures like Japan that kind of pretended like it wasn't happening and kind of let the banks uh, deal with it over 10 or 15 years. Well, Andrew Jackson uh, didn't deal with that that way. He he basically said there's massive over-speculation. We're not going to let people buy federal land with debt anymore. That was the the species of
0: 1836-37. And sure enough, it all comes crashing down. Well, so he fixed the problem quickly, but uh, he he's kind of gotten a bad bad rap in the in the financial media. Uh, maybe it's the, because the financial media itself likes this. Or is part and part of this culture. Let's let's move to the the current uh, period, which is uh, you know as you point out, a lot of people are asking, well, h- how can you tell if you're in a crisis or not? Uh, if you're in the midst of it, you know, are we in one now? I I, I want to before we get to the to the kind of juicy current stuff in your view in the future. I want to. Um, ask one question that for me is very important, which is that presentist bias that we all have, where we can't see a crisis, particularly if we're in the middle of it. I, I circle back and back, uh, back uh, to the main point that interest rates in this country—you don't spend a lot of time on them—but th- th- you know they they seem to be a, a huge driver of the current attitude towards debt. That interest rates in this country had been coming down for 35 years. And that interest rates coming down for that long a period of time, that two generations of uh, market participants creates a culture of debt that is uh, a one-way culture of debt, which is more is always better. And uh, the last two years, interest rates, we'll see whether they've bottomed or not, but they stopped going down dramatically uh, about two years ago, and two, three years ago, and have been moving sideways ever since. But to me, it seems... And I I have been only in the industry for the last 20 years, so correct me if I'm wrong. Only 20 years. Yeah. So the the attitude towards debt uh, has changed and that uh, at least right now, people are very concerned about being over... The publicly traded banks have very lean loan books. The Non-bank institutions do not, but the bank institutions have very lean loan books. The corporations I uh, track have feasted at the table of debt for decades, but for the last two years, they're trying to step back as much as they can and, uh, and, and slim down. And there seems to be a change. The question is whether, is that change towards debt? Is it too little, too late? And where do you see us currently in terms of your, your cycle of borrowing, over borrowing and contraction? Well,
1: so I think there's a relatively straightforward way to examine whether there's too much debt in a country or in a sector. And that's simply by dividing that debt into GDP and looking at that trend over five or 10 years. We 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 frankly look at it back as many decades as we can. But if you look at aggregate U.S. private debt to GDP uh, since 08-09, it it's been relatively flat. And I personally don't think there's reason for a lot of alarm within the United States right now. Now, I quickly add that there's certain sectors within that that there is a reason for concern. So if you did that analysis just on highly leveraged transactions, which I believe are about a trillion and a half. So again, it's a small piece of a $30 trillion pile. But highly leveraged transactions to me are an area of great concern, but it's a small sector. Student lending has been coming up as a percent of GDP. It's an area of concern. I actually think agricultural lending, doing that same analysis which we've just done in the last few days, uh, you know, had it uh, agricultural lending is once again reappro is reapproaching the levels of 1982 when the ag industry got into so much trouble. So we think we're going to have little areas of problems, but it's not going to rise to the level of a national systemic uh, problem. If we look at Asia, the story is very different you do that same analysis in China or Australia or South Korea, any number of other countries, there's very
0: valid reasons to be very concerned. That is debt, private sector debt as a percentage of GDP is at alarming That's levels right. based on past past history. It's curious, how do you do the data in, uh, in Australia when they have that three decades of no recession? Well, I view,
1: I think it's very important to understand whether a country is kind of a Hegemon in its area or whether it's a satellite of some mouth, and you know china is what makes yeah yeah i mean china as long as china keeps china's economy is you know 10 or 12 trillion depending on who you listen to uh, australia is about a trillion so Australia's trends are really going to be a function of what happens in china and that's true for most of the economies in that region that's Frankly, that's true of South Korea and Malaysia and and Indonesia and Vietnam and, you know, any other. So, you know, if if China itself has an even more material slowdown or reversal, I think all of those folks are going to feel it in a very significant way. Frankly, you're seeing it a little bit in Australia right now. They've had a decline in real estate prices. You're seeing it in uh, South Korea where they've had the first uh, dip in GDP in quite some time. So I'm not sure that, you know, I would likely think that over the next two or three years, we're going to see that reversal,
0: uh, in, in, uh, in Asia. But that, that being said, um, given your, your method and despite the, uh, title of your book, A Brief History of Doom, you, you actually don't, you don't see us at a, at least in the U.S. at an extreme point currently. We, we
1: are not, we are not. We have small pockets of issues, but, uh, generally speaking we're not gonna face we're not facing a situation like we did in 07
0: and then how does how this end up being reflected in uh, you are kind of a venture an early stage uh business supporter uh how do these are, are you looking at debt in the uh, and, and I, I believe that your investments tend to focus in the the Delaware Valley area is that correct
1: yeah we're early stage investors in our companies you know, could get debt. or would get debt if they could, but they're too small. and They can't, so it's kind of a
0: non-issue. Okay, so you're you're and your companies, as you say, are so small that uh, these macroeconomic issues are less relevant than their own particular business. That's, uh, right. That's right. So this is this is not directly related to your day job, uh, related but not directly. So it, it, this is simply a uh, tracking the rise and fall and the cyclicality of debt and economic activity is just an uh, an intellectual interest of yours. This has been a labor of love for me and for our group. Okay, well,
1: that's that's. Uh, I mean, one uh, of earth. the things one of the things we've done that we're very excited about is that we have gone out and reconstructed uh, data, especially private lending data, in each of these crises for a period ten years prior to the crisis itself, and for ten years after. And we have, in many cases, had to go to dusty corners of libraries and get. Uh, railroad manuals from the 1800s, et cetera. Uh, you know, we've gone to our dusty archives for some of the German data for 1873 and so forth and so on. And we've put all this out on Excel spreadsheets at our website. And one of the things we're excited about is researchers, academic researchers in this area, are starting to use the data we put out there to kind of sharpen and improve the, the research that's being done in this area.
0: Please, please mention the, the website. Uh, feel free. We're, it's very complicated. Bankingcrisis.org. <laughs> uh, any other thing that you would like to kind of summarize or make sure the uh, soon-to-be readers of A Brief History of Doom, 200 Years of Financial Crises, uh, anything you want to make sure those future readers know uh, before we wrap up? Well, we have hope we've written it in a
1: short in lively way. So we think it's something folks are going to enjoy.
0: Uh, as far as doom goes, uh, making doom enjoyable and debt, Laura, it, it, you have to acknowledge that the people who find uh, debt crises and the history of debt crises enjoyable are a select group of the population, uh, present company included, but it is a select group of the population. It's a select group of the population, and we love them all. (laughs) My guest has been Richard Vague, the author of the just published from the University of Pennsylvania Press, A Brief History of Doom, 200 Years of Financial Crisis. Highly recommend taking a look at it, whether you enjoy debt or doom or not. It simply is uh, if you are watching uh, the economy or the markets or economic development is something that you need to need to absolutely be aware of. And it is for a data-filled book, it's actually very uh, easy to read. The points are, are, are well made and clear. Richard, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for your interest.